I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and uh, turn over to Psalm chapter 1. If you take your Bible and really just divided it in half, you're probably going to be near the end of the Psalms, and then you can just start flipping from the left to the right to get from uh, probably the upper 100s to Psalm 1 where we will be. Uh, but this morning we're, we're kicking off uh, a summer in the Psalms and want to just spend the next several months together, about three full months together, working through some selected Psalms from, Psalm, uh, from the first book of Psalms. And in the Psalter, there is 150 psalms that were comprised over a variety of, of authors through a variety of circumstances over a variety of years. And what we're going to do is we're going to be focusing our time and attention on psalms that were from book one. And the, the breakdown of how the psalms look, and just for your information, it's there on the screen. You can see the five different divisions of the book of psalms and how they um, work themselves out and, and break down. And uh, you have 150 total, and there are a variety of authors and while we will focus our time and attention on just a few from book number one, uh, I do just want to remind you that uh, there is this summer reading plan available for you that if you follow, you will be able to work through all 150 psalms by the end of the month of August. And so while we take a look at 12 or 13 psalms, you have the opportunity to read all 150 of them. And so uh, there's a digital version of that plan on our Facebook page, which you can find. Um, there's a hard copy back there on the welcome table, which you can go and pick up. Uh, if you go back there today and you look for one and it's not there, let me know. And we'll just print out more for you. Um, but that is a way for us to uh, work through the, all of the Psalter this summer, even though we're only going to be looking in detail at 12 or 13 of them. Um, but there were a, and there are a variety of authors that comprised and composed the Psalms. You have David being the author of about 75, um, 73 of those in the actual book of Psalms, will give attribution to David as the author. And then two of the unknown authored Psalms, the New Testament actually says, David wrote these. And it was the disciples that were going to quote a passage from one of these two Psalms, and it said something to the effect of, David said this. And then they quoted from one of the Psalms that is going to be in the book that we have referenced as anonymous. Uh, you have Asaph being the author of 12 different psalms. Asaph was a worship leader. Asaph led people in the tabernacle as they came before God and he authored 12 psalms. The sons of Korah, fascinating, fascinating story that we just don't have time to get into this morning. Uh, but the sons of Korah were part of the tabernacle worship as well. They were doorkeepers and custodians, and they wrote 11 psalms. You have Solomon, David's son, writing two psalms. Now, we're told elsewhere in the scriptures that Solomon wrote over a thousand songs. He was a prolific songwriter like his father. You have the book of Song of Songs being, by and large, his greatest hits off of his romance CDs. 
and you have Solomon authoring thousands, but two of them find their way into the Psalter. Uh, Heman the Ezraite wrote Psalm 88. Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89. Moses is the author of Psalm 90. And then you have 48 different Psalms by which have an author that is unknown. And one of the things that I think we need to keep in mind, just as we consider the fact that there was multiple authors of the Psalms, and even a large number, about a third of the Psalms that we don't have an author attributed to, is that standing behind these human authors is a divine author. And we would understand that truth to be true of all of Scripture. That all Scripture is God-breathed. That it is, it is God Himself using these individuals on the screen, using other writers of Scripture to communicate the very words that He wants communicated. And He used their situations. He used their personalities. He used their education levels and the circumstances by which they found themselves to communicate things to ultimately us and ultimately those that will even come after us. And so these psalms, as the rest of Scripture, was written in a very specific historical context, but we can understand the truth of God's Word as being timeless and able to be applied to us here today, even though Psalm 1 is attributed to an anonymous author, and even though it was written thousands of years ago. Because standing behind a human author is a divine author. And we need to just remind ourselves of that. In, 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 in every way, the red letter words in your New Testament are not any more divinely inspired than the black letter words in your New Testament or the Old Testament. Because all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable and useful and it is used by God to accomplish His work. And so as we step into the Psalms and we look at several of them that were authored by David, some of them that we do not know the author of, we need to just remind ourselves that there stands behind these Psalms a divine author that is communicating truths for us to know and understand that he wants to endure that are timeless. And so Psalm 1 is going to break down in this way. We're going to think through six verses together this morning. Uh, the first thing that we'll look at is when the blessed are blessed. When is that? We'll look at what the blessed are like. We'll consider what the wicked are like. And then we will consider their discerned end. And before we go any farther, I would just like for us to stop and spend some time before the Lord praying and asking the Lord to come and work in our midst through His Word. So, would you join me to that end, please? Father God, we, we've opened Your Word, or we're, we're going to here in, in just a few minutes, and we're going to read it. We want to understand it. We want to ask You to help us make sense of it. And God, we know that your word accomplishes tremendous things. It's breathed out by you. It's, it's, it's what we understand to be exactly what you want us to have and understand and, and learn. God, even as we considered last week one of the roles and, and, and jobs of the Holy Spirit where he 
allows us and, and, and supernaturally causes us to understand the scriptures. God, we pray for that here in this moment now. God, we pray that he would, he would work in us, in our minds and, and through our ears and, and, and as we reason and think and process and, and, and even as, as what, what happens in our, in our souls intersect and interact with what our, what our minds are hearing and processing, God, we just, we just pray for your work and for your presence to come and work. And so, God, we thank you for your word, this precious gift that you have given us. God, may we be people that delight in your word. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first main section of this psalm, when the blessed are blessed, let's look at verses 1 and 2 and just read them together, and then we'll just consider a few things from these verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So right off the bat, this psalmist indicates that there is something about those who are blessed that can be observed and that characterizes them. And we have a contrast being pictured and being portrayed between verse 1 and verse 2. And that contrast stands out screaming at us as if through a megaphone with the word but at the beginning of verse 2. You're taking two things and you're contrasting them. And the first is what the blessed or when the blessed are blessed. And it's spoken in, uh, in a more negative sense as if they don't do these things. And then verse 2 hops in and contrasts and says, but the blessed do these things. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Let's consider what even this word blessed means. It can mean happy. It can mean favored. It can mean fortunate. It describes a life of delight and fruitfulness with a sense of worth. And in many ways, what this word means is what you and I are try or what you and I are sold often every time we turn on the television or every time we engage and interact with pop culture. To be quite honest with you, this idea of happiness and blessing is dominating the political landscape right now as it does every time an election cycle rolls around. Everybody's trying to sell you their vision and version of how to have the greatest life possible. Happiness is found here. Happiness is found there. Here's where you're blessed. This is where you're going to prosper. And it dominates. It's dominating politics right now. It's dominating pop culture as it has for so long. And, and as we intersect with this and engage with this and live in a culture such as ours, we have to ask ourselves a significant question. Is it do we take God's word and his definition of what blessed and prosperous and fortunate looks like, or do we take on a world's definition? Because there will be some that want to tell you that blessing is found if you own a boat and have the opportunity to go fishing. They're probably boat salesmen, to be quite honest. Are you going to take that definition and work for the boat? 
You're going to take God's definition. What is going to define how you define what blessing is, what prosperity is, what happiness is, where joy is found? What is going to define how you define? Is it God's word or is it some other source? The psalmist tells us, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who does not do something. And the first thing they do not do is walk in the counsel of the wicked. The first thing that they do is they don't heed the advice of the wicked. That's the first thing we see the psalmist say in regards to who or when are the blessed blessed. The blessed are blessed when they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now let's consider that for a minute because I think walking in the counsel of the wicked is probably best understood as heeding the advice. So what do we mean by this? What does the psalmist mean by this? Because you could have had an unbelieving math teacher who doesn't know the Lord, doesn't love the Lord, who explained to you that two plus two equaled four, and, and you could read a verse like that and go, well, I should not heed that advice. And I, and I think you'd disservice the text in that way, and the scriptures very clearly articulate that there is, uh, there is an understanding of the world as God has created it that is observable and is definable and it's understandable by people who are saved and unsaved. We would use the, the big fancy words, the doctrine of common grace to describe this. That God allows the rain to fall on the farms of those who are his children and those who may not want nothing to do with him. And the sun will shine on the crops of those who love him and those who may hate him. It, it's, it's an expression of God's common grace. And so in that, you can see, and, and we have all across our, our landscape throughout thousands of years of history. People who do not love the Lord have been able to discover truths about the Lord and the world that he has created. So we have to do a little bit more understanding and a little bit more reasoning that, that goes a little bit further than reject anything your mathematics teacher told you if they did not love Jesus. Because they may have explained to you that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and quite frankly, God in his common grace allows unbelievers to understand truths that he has created and all truth has been authored by God and so the truth of two plus two equaling four is a God-given truth that he's allowed all to have the opportunity to understand. I think what this means is that you don't heed the advice of unbelievers as greater than the counsel of the scriptures. Some of you may work for bosses that are unbelievers. That boss may indicate that he or she wants you to do something a certain way. You could, you could press this verse tomorrow morning and go, I'm not supposed to heed your advice. And again, I think you have pressed it a little far. The question would be, are you heeding the advice in greater priority than what the scriptures say? It's not that unbelievers are incapable of understanding truth and communicating truthful things. The question becomes, whose counsel are we more highly prioritizing? When are the blessed blessed? When they don't prioritize the counsel of unbelievers. Secondly, when are the blessed blessed? When they don't stand in the way of sinners. And we're going to see a gradient occur 
in this verse. We're going to see a gradient happen and a shift from walking, which probably could, could connote a, a bit of a casual acquaintance or relationship, to now standing, which communicates something a little bit more than casual, to ultimately sitting, which communicates a, a, a I'm learning from, I'm now in a posture of, of receiving instruction from you as a mentor or, as a, or, as a, or someone who's discipling me. You're someone I follow. I'm sitting at your feet and learning from you. Well, the second part of this gradient is that the blessed are those who do not stand in the way of sinners. They don't pause in the way of sinners. They don't hang out with the people that are going to purposefully set their face against the Lord and do what the Lord would have them not to do. In many ways, this calls to question the the type of company that we keep. And it's not that you and I are not allowed biblically to have friends who are unbelievers, but again, we have to go back and ask ourselves the question, what is the level of influence? Are we prioritizing their influence or their way of thinking is higher than the scriptures? We have to be very careful how we in, engage and interact with people that don't know the Lord because there's a, there's a worldview, there's an understanding of the world and how it works that will be entirely different from what the scriptures say, what the scriptures call us to. When are the blessed blessed? They're blessed when they walk not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. This word scoffer can mean one who scorns or mocks. One who scorns or mocks. This may be the individual who will vehemently say there is no God and shake their fist at the very idea of a God. A scoffer, a mocker may also be one who may acknowledge that there is a God but shake their fist that that God may have any claim of authority over their lives. They would scoff at the very idea that there is someone who's able or has the authority to tell them what they should do. And to be quite frank, we see this idea of scoffing, of mockery, both outside and inside the church. And I don't necessarily just mean our church. It certainly could be our church. And I think every local church is susceptible to it. But I mean by and large. If you look at at those who would place themselves under the banner of Christianity, you will find those that want to claim Christ and yet scoff at Christ. Claim to be a follower of Christ and yet scoff at Christ. And there are those who want to claim that Christ is good for them. But he doesn't necessarily have to be good for everybody. Buddha can be good for you or Allah can be good for you or you know what if you just try to do a bunch of stuff that works for you because after all why aren't we just on a a big wheel and everybody's on their own spoke working their way to the hub of that wheel and they would the scoffers would say things such as is the gospel really the only way And they may fully acknowledge that, you know, I I do believe in Jesus, and I believe that he died on the cross, but but I don't believe that there's an exclusivity to him. And and so you may be able to find your way and your path through other means, and there's, there's a scoffing, there's a mockery 
of the Lord that happens and takes place in those questions. You might even find people underneath the banner of Christianity that will say things such as, did, did God really say that? Did God really say that? And, and, and I just, this past week, read an article, it was on Friday, read an article of a, of a well-known popular Christian singer who, who came out of the closet. He declared himself to be a homosexual male. He, he is divorcing his wife, leaving his wife and two children. And he cites in this article encouragement by two other pastor mentors of him, his that said basically, go be yourself. Go do this. Folks, this is scoffing. This is mockery of what God has said. And I, and I don't want to just pick on homosexuality because it's some greater sin. The, the encouragement to lie and be dishonest is just as deadly. Underneath the banner of Christianity, there is a scoffing that echoes exactly what the serpent said to Eve in Genesis 3. Did God really say that? That's the question he posed to her. Did he really say that? You're not going to surely die. And he began to undo and unwind what God had communicated. And we see that at play in our culture today, and it should be something that we're not surprised by. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, in giving his charge and instruction to Timothy, somebody that he was mentoring, a, a young pastor in a church that he was facing this, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That's to be ready when it's popular. Be ready when it's unpopular. You need to repuve. You need to rebuke. You need to exhort and do so with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into silly myths. This is a description that Paul tells Timothy, it is going to happen. We can surely see and conclude areas that this has indeed happened. But, but notice the characterization that he uses. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. What that describes is a people who want to live underneath a banner of Christianity and have want to have nothing to do with Christ or the Scriptures. And so they're going to go find for themselves people to tell them what they want to hear. They're going to go look for teachers to suit their own passions. They're going to turn away from listening to the truth and wander into silly myths. The blessed are blessed when they do not sit in the seat of scoffers. The blessed are blessed when they don't stand in the way of sinners, when they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And, and folks, we have to just be aware and cognizant of the reality that there are those who would want to be underneath a banner of Christianity and yet will shake their fist at the very idea that the scriptures are authoritative and God has any right to speak into their lives. 
And you can go find their books in Christian bookstores. You can find their resources and materials everywhere. And it's mockery. The blessed are blessed when they don't sit in their presence and underneath their teaching. Well, verse 2 begins to describe now what the blessed do. If the blessed are characterized as those who don't do these certain things, what are they known for? Look with me at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That word delight can mean pleasure, but his pleasure is found in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. That idea of day and night meditation is all the time. Just think about those words that begin to contrast and now positively characterize those who the Lord calls blessed. They are those who find their greatest joy and pleasure in the Scriptures. They delight in the Scriptures, and it's the Scriptures that they find themselves pondering and meditating at all times during the day. Consider what this psalmist wrote, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I mean, there's an idea as the Psalms speak about the Scriptures that is just tremendous. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, deals almost exclusively with God's Word. Almost exclusively with God's Word. The blessed are those who delight in God's Word. They take pleasure in God's Word and they meditate and they ponder on God's Word day and night. Consider what God's Word says about His Word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It instructs and informs our thoughts and actions. God's Word is life and healing to all who find it. God's will is accomplished through His Word and His Word will accomplish what God intended it. It's like the rain and the snow that comes to water the ground. God's Word is a fire. It consumes. It's a hammer. It breaks rocks into pieces. It's a seed that is planted and produces fruit. It's a double-edged sword that pierces and reveals to us our need for Christ. We know that it's breathed out by God. It is profitable. It's, it rebukes and it exhorts and encourages and trains so that we may be fully equipped for every good work. When are the blessed blessed? They're blessed when they delight themselves in God's word. They delight when they find their greatest joy and pleasure in the Word of God and they meditate on it day and night. And let's just be honest that this this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to even cause us to want this. That the work of the Spirit in this regard is that God will, will take hearts who want nothing to do with Him and cause them to want want the Word, want to follow, want to delight and take pleasure in 
His Word. Now, this idea of meditating, just to define this briefly for you, is not like New Age meditation would teach us. New Age meditation is all based on and built around the premise of emptying your mind of something. So you find a quiet place, you find some soothing music, you maybe cross your legs, you, you do whatever is, makes you most comfortable, and you try to empty your mind of everything that your mind is thinking of. I, quite frankly, I don't know how that's possible. Biblical meditation is completely different. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind of anything, it's filling your mind with God's Word. There's a huge distinction between the two where New Age meditation will tell you to sit quietly and listen to soothing tones and try to empty yourself of things. And biblical meditation says, no, you ponder day and night in regards to what God has said. This word meditation in the scriptures can actually be translated as growl. It has the implication of like a low murmuring. That like the, the connotation there is that you're just walking around speaking to yourself in a low tone of voice the, the word of God. And everybody else around you probably just thinks you're a fool. But you are pondering and meditating on God's word as you're growling his word to yourself. That's the picture of what the psalmist is communicating. That's what he's saying when he ponders and meditates day and nights. That God's word is on his lips. The law of the Lord is on his lips and he delights in it. That's a way to think about the scriptures that is just tremendous. And there's a vision there for us to think about the scriptures that is just tremendous. Because I think if we're all honest... And I'll just speak for myself. I think if I'm honest, these things aren't nearly as true for me as they should be. When are the blessed blessed? They're blessed when they delight in the law of the Lord and they meditate on it day and night. Secondly, what are the blessed like? The psalmist continues to begin describing for us what the blessed are like. He, this would be the blessed, is like... A tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So here's a, here's a picture of what the blessed are like. We know what the blessed do. They delight in God's law. They delight in God's word. They meditate on it day and night. They don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. They meditate and they delight in God's word. And those then are like trees planted by streams of water. That word planted can actually mean transplanted or literally does mean transplanted. And just for a minute, think about the dry, arid region of the world that, that Jerusalem and, and the, the area of, of Judea and Israel is. There's not a lot of flowing streams around. And the picture is of a tree that's been transplanted by streams of flowing water. Those trees would be green, they would be healthy, they would be lush, they would be productive. And that description is even found in verse 3. They yield fruit in its season. This means they're healthy. They're, they're doing what healthy trees are supposed to do. In a couple months, we're all going to want to go grab apples because healthy apple trees 
create apples. Their leaves do not wither. They don't dry up because the source of nutrients and hydration and everything the tree needs is found. And all that he does, he prospers. What are the blessed like? The blessed are like transplanted trees whose roots have made them rock solid and steady because they delight in God's law. I took this picture at the Hagerstown City Park, and I'm not sure how visible all of the detail is, but that's of a tree by a stream of water. And that you can see, perhaps, in, in some sense of detail, all of the roots that just begin to spider out. That's this picture the psalmist gives us. You can see trees just like that. If you went to Renfrew and took a look at the trees that are planted there next to the stream, those trees are strong. Those trees are in a position where they have all of the life-giving sustenance they need to do what they were supposed to do, grow and bear fruit. This echoes the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And Jesus says, he describes and defines even what the, who the wise man is. The wise man's the one who hears his word and obeys it. Lim, language very similar to delighting and meditating. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, the rains came down, the floods came up. Hand motions from, from Flannel Graph Sunday School, anybody? The rains came down, the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. That's the one that the blessed is. That's what the blessed are like. Well, in contrast to what the blessed are like, we have a description of what the wicked are like. The blessed yield fruit in its season. Their leaves do not wither, and all that the blessed do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, verse 4. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the, the word pictures here are just, just tremendous. Because you have the blessed being pictured as a, as a tree that's been planted by a stream of flowing water that has everything available to it to have a flourishing life because all of its sustenance is found in the water that it's been planted by. And so those roots go out. And the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. The wind drives away. Well, chaff is a part of a grain of wheat. It's the byproduct of wheat. And when you harvest wheat, you pick off the top of it, and then you would put the wheat in a bag, and you'd just start beating it. And you'd begin to separate the kernel from the chaff and the other parts that would be disposed of, that would have no use for you in whatever you were using the wheat for. So then you have this bag of, of broken wheat heads that have kernels in it and have chaff in it, and you've got to figure out some way to separate the wheat that you want to keep from the chaff that you just want to get rid of. And so what you would do and what they would have done, this is called the winnowing process, is they would have, they would have picked up the wheat and they would have thrown it up in the air and allowed the breeze to carry away the very light disposable parts. And the kernels, which would have been a little heavier, by virtue of gravity, would have just fallen in place. 
Here's a picture of what that process looks like. You can see the man in the foreground. He's, he's dumping from a basket wheat and chaff that is together at this point, And the chaff is being blown.